Thanks, David. It really is good to be with you today, and uh, we do covet your prayers for our sabbatical. A sabbatical is pure gift. It's not something somebody deserves or earns. It's uh, purely a gift from the church, and uh, Brenda, I feel like this is a very strategic uh, sabbatical, and uh, just really want to seek and find God in some significant way, so thank you for that. Well, today we wrap up our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And one thing we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, and seen in the other Gospels as well, is how often people second-guess Jesus. They take him aside and they say, what you're thinking, what you're doing is mistaken. And you see, Jesus' enemies did it rather aggressively. Sometimes random people in the crowd would do it. Now, sometimes his own disciples would do it as well. And perhaps the most egregious example of this is found in Matthew 16. Jesus had explained to his disciples that he would go to Jerusalem, he would be betrayed, he would suffer, <clears throat> he would die, and then he would ra- be raised up on the third day. And in response, Peter took him aside, and we're told that Peter rebuked him. And he said, never will this happen to you. And in response, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of man, not the things of God. And so there's this track record of second-guessing Jesus. Today we come to the very last passage in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus is going to return to the Father. Since chapter 9, he's been on this journey to Jerusalem, and then he's going to make his departure to the Father. But before he does, he tells them the plan, okay? This is how it's going to go after I'm gone this is the plan. And what we wonder is, since Jesus has died on the cross and been raised from the dead, quote, just as he said, does he now have enough credibility to where the disciples will say, yes, I don't get it, but I trust you? Or will they continue to second guess him? We're going to have to look at briefly in the book of Acts, the companion volume to Luke, to, to answer that question. But what I really wonder this morning is, does Jesus have enough credibility with us? Will we stop second-guessing Jesus? Or will we say, Jesus, you've proven. You said you'd die. You said you'd rise again. You have plenty of credibility with us. We're all in. That's what I really wonder. And so we'll loop back to that at the end of the message today. So we begin in Luke 24, verse 36, and we're going to see the foundation of this plan. The foundation of this plan is the resurrection of Jesus. If the disciples aren't convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, this plan is just a pipe dream. And if you you Google that term, you'll see a pipe dream is what you experience when you smoke something uh, illegal out of a pipe. And it's just like, it's like this hallucination. It's not reality, but it's an idea. And if the resurrection of Jesus is not literally true, what we're going to talk about is just a pipe dream. But the scene is in Jerusalem. The disciples are gathered on that first Easter evening. They've been talking to these two men we we talked about last week. They had had this conversation with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they were still in the room. We read in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. 
So you don't get the impression he opened the door and walked in. No, he just appeared to them. And he gave them the, the standard Jewish greeting, shalom, peace to you. Then verse 37, but they were startled, understandably, and frightened, and they thought that they saw a spirit. The most likely explanation to them was that, not that this is Jesus bodily raised from the dead. They weren't expecting him to be crucified, much less resurrected. The most likely explanation, explanation is that this is his spirit. This is his ghost standing in front of us. And so what Jesus does next is very, is very significant. It's very kind. He addresses their troubled and doubting hearts. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so he was trying to convince them that he, standing there, was the same person, the same body that had been hanging on the cross the previous Friday. He said, look at me, touch me. The spirit does not does not have flesh and blood. As we all know, uh, spirit is a disembodied being. A spirit, by definition, does not have a body. Verse 40, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. This is one of the most amazing things to me. The evidence we have in the New Testament is that Jesus is henceforth eternally embodied. And the body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus, still bears remembrances of his sacrifice for us. He still has scars in his hands and in his feet. And then verse 41, when David read it, it seems a little bit out of the blue. And while they, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? It's highly unlikely that he was suddenly hungry and wanted a snack. What he's doing here is he's saying, I'm going to prove to you that I have a tangible body. Is there something I can eat? Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The fact that he could eat a piece of fish meant that he had a real tangible body that could ingest food. He was not a spirit. And so Jesus wanted to convince them he was bodily raised from the dead. And we could speculate all day long about the, and people do, about the resurrected body of Jesus. But two things Luke wants us to know. Number one, there's continuity between the body that hung on the cross and the body that stood before them. And so it was the same Jesus. This wasn't a different body. It wasn't someone else. And number two, it's a tangible body. Uh, we would say physical, but it's not physical the way ours are, but it's a tangible body. It had different principles, but they could touch him. They could, he could eat food. And so think about what Jesus is doing here. Before he unveils the plan, he wants to convince them that he was raised bodily from the dead. If they didn't really believe he was raised bodily from the dead, again, it's just a pipe dream. It's just an idea. It's just some, some hypothetical uh, plan. But, but since, he w- since they were going to be at the, at the heart of this plan, they had to be convinced that he had been bodily raised from the dead. They were going to be firsthand eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And so that's what Jesus does here. And if you read the New Testament, the authors, some of whom were in the room, they, they will commonly refer back to this. We're witnesses of these things. John will start the book of 1 John saying, what our eyes saw, what our, what our hands touched, these are the things 
that we are telling you. And so the documents that we call the New Testament were written by people who either saw Jesus raised from the dead or who were close to people that, were, that saw uh, Jesus raised from the dead. And that was the case for Luke. And so unless they were convinced, they would never be convincing. And the same thing is true for us. If you and I are not convinced of the bodily resurrection of the Lord, we're never going to be convincing in our witness in the way we live our lives. Our words and our lives won't be convincing. You know that, na- that game Jenga? You know what that is? Shake your head. So you've got these, these little wooden blocks, and you stack them up in this alternating order, and you've got this tower, and you play the game by pulling out a block at a time. And you lose the game if you pull out the block that makes the whole thing collapse. Well, in the Christian faith, that block is the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised bodily from the dead, the whole thing collapses. It's it's just worthless. Paul said we're pitiful. We're of all people to be pitied if Christ didn't raise from the dead. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. The converse is also true. If Christ was raised from the dead, your faith is priceless. So it's invaluable because everything he said and everything he did was validated. His death did pay for sin. His life was validated by God the Father in heaven. And so uh, Jesus' resurrection validates everything he said he did, including the plan moving forward. And so here's the plan, beginning in verse 44. In these verses, Jesus reiterates what he had told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, namely that the entire Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, demanded that the Messiah die and be resurrected. Verse 44, then he said to them, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so for three years, he had been telling them what you see in every area of the scripture, the the Hebrew scripture, it was all pointing to me. I'm the one that had to die on the cross, had to be raised from the dead. I'm the fulfillment of it all. And what we've seen throughout Luke is before the resurrection, they, they not only didn't understand what Jesus was saying, they couldn't understand what he was saying. They just didn't have any category for a crucified Messiah. In, in Luke 18.34, after Jesus had explained these things, uh, Luke records, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. But on that first Easter evening, they were finally ready to get it, finally ready to understand that he had been raised bodily from the dead, after they believed that he had been raised bodily from the dead. So we read in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He gave them this supernatural capacity to understand the scriptures, what he had been telling them for the last three years. All these things that were opaque and confusing, all of a sudden became crystal clear. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
as we talked about last week, these were things that were hiding in plain sight in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 talked about the Messiah, the suffering servant, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, All of our transgressions were laid upon him. He was pierced through for our transgression. So he was our substitute. That had to happen. And then the Psalms, it talked about there would be a a descendant of David who would sit on his throne forever. If the Messiah was going to be killed, the Messiah would have to be brought back to life so that he he could reign on the throne of his father David forever. And so for the first time, they understood that everything that had happened that weekend was planned by God long ago. And for the first time, they understood that the death and resurrection of Jesus were at the very center of everything that God had been doing. And so Jesus opened their minds to understand this. In verse 47, he adds an additional element that was also demanded by the Hebrew Scriptures, namely the plan going forward. He said, and the scriptures demand that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And so the plan all along was for people from every grouping on earth to hear this message that if you repent, if you turn from your sin and turn back from God, you can actually have your sin forgiven which means that the debt that you owe is wiped out. And so this plan had to be taken to all the nations. Everybody on earth would, would have this opportunity to turn and receive forgiveness, forgiveness. And so you see this in places like Isaiah 49.6. It spoke of God's plan that his, his servant, his Messiah, would be for all the nations. And so we read this. Uh, He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so if God's going to send his Messiah and his Messiah is going to be his unique son, he's not going to send him for one small tribe and one small geographic area. No, he's going to be a light for all the nations. This is too small of a mission. It's for everybody, everywhere. And at this point, the disciples, we don't know what they were thinking, but they must have thought, wow, that's an amazing plan. That's very very aggressive. That's very ambitious. I wonder how that's going to happen. Well, the next verse, he says, you are going to be right at the center of this plan. You have a unique role to play. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Since they were eyewitnesses of everything that had happened, they had a unique role to play. They, they would give an eyewitness account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And since their minds were, were opened to understand the scripture, they would be able to talk to the nations and they would be able to tell them in a comprehensive and a, in a, in a um, coherent way that Jesus had risen from the dead for them also. We read in verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts 1 makes clear that promise is the Holy Spirit, okay? Don't get triggered when I say this, but it's kind of like the Ohio State University. I mean, this is the Spirit, the Spirit that was hovering over the surface of the deep at creation. 
the Spirit who empowered the prophets, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit is going to descend on you and you will be clothed with that power, okay? And so this is no small thing. He said, wait in Jerusalem, this will happen. And then in the last few verses, Jesus' uh, departure to the Father is recorded. This is what's been building since chapter 9. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus uh, departs to his father. He makes this exodus. The disciples remain in Jerusalem, and they're waiting for this endowment, this power that would fall from on high. And so to summarize, Jesus convinced them that he was raised bodily from the dead. He opens their mind to understand the scripture, and he promises, I'm going to send you the power of God so that you will be witnesses to all the nations. And we think that's awesome plan. It's just, that's just sound. It's tight. But the disciples did not have a great track record, okay? Three nights earlier, Peter had denied knowing Jesus. Three times he was asked. He denied even knowing Jesus. And, and the, uh, the rest of the disciples flee. They, they leave him. And so it wasn't a slam dunk that they were going to have the insight and the internal strength and the courage to take this message of Jesus to the nations, But if you read the book of Acts, which is the companion volume, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and then Acts, and what you find is that everything happened exactly as Jesus said. There's absolutely no hint that they second-guessed Jesus and thought, that's unreasonable, we can't pull this off. What Jesus said actually happened. And so on the, the day of Pentecost, it was like seven weeks later, which is not a long time. But seven weeks later, they were gathered together and the Spirit fell from heaven and, and uh, they were filled with the Spirit. And the manifestation was that they spoke in languages that they had never learned. And they were declaring in these languages the mighty acts of God. And guess who was in Jerusalem at that time? Luke tells us that there were people from every nation under heaven. And people from all the nations heard in their own languages the power, the glory of God. And when Peter stands up to explain to them this phenomenon that they were experiencing, guess what? He sounds an awful lot like Jesus. He unfolded the scripture and he explained to them that everything that was happening was foretold in scripture, that it was coming to fulfillment. For example, he explained this outpouring of the Spirit. That's what Joel was talking about in his prophecy. He explained that, that Jesus not being abandoned to the grave, that's what David had talked about in Psalm 16. Jesus going back to the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's what Psalm 110 was talking about. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are your footstool. He explained that everything that happened that weekend happened, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no mistake. It was no surprise to God, anything that happened. And then he explained, he said, we are all witnesses 
of Jesus being raised from the dead. All of a sudden, he sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? And then guess what happened? 3,000 that day believed, and they were baptized, and they were added to that number. If you keep reading the book of Acts, you'll find that the gospel went from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, right at the very center of the Roman Empire. And Paul had ambitions of taking the gospel to Spain. And instead of being frightened, instead of denying that they even knew Jesus, they counted it, they counted it a privilege to suffer shame and abuse for his name. They were willing to die for Jesus Christ. It turns out they were so convinced that they were convincing. They had this influence. They had this power everywhere that they went. And Jesus had told them this, that people will treat you the way they treat me. Some will love you. They will receive your message. Others will persecute you. And because they believed the plan, here we are on the other side of the world almost 2,000 years later, sitting in this room, worshiping Jesus. Solid plan. It actually worked. Jesus was right. His plan for the nations. And so this passage got me to to thinking about uh, how I came to Christ when I was a sophomore in college. And these three guys that befriended me, Joel and Bob and Stuart, and uh, at the time, if you knew me, I was kind of a life of the party kind of guy, but, but I was profoundly self-centered. I just used people, and I was incredibly lonely. Many friends, acquaintances, but I was a very lonely person. And these guys didn't take me on as a spiritual project. No, they, they honestly befriended me. And because they had... Uh, they had this understanding, their, their minds were open to the scripture, and they had this, this confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus. When they talked about it, it just had this ring of authenticity. It was just the most natural thing for me over about the course of three or four months. It was the most natural thing in the world for me to fall in love with Jesus because of the power, the witness of their lives. Because they were convinced, they were convincing And that is the plan of God. It really is. And so honestly, my prayer for us, my prayer for me, my prayer for you individually, my prayer for us as a church is that we would stop second-guessing Jesus. We would stop listening to the commands of Jesus, listening to the plans of Jesus, and evaluate it according to our logic and asking the question, do I think this is really feasible? Is this really something I can pull off given my education, my temperament, my history, my whatever? We would just stop thinking in those categories and say, Jesus died and rose again just as he said. Therefore, in my mind and in my heart, he's got credibility. And so our lives are different than the original disciples. We're not eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus but the building blocks are the same. The foundation is the same, the death and resurrection of Jesus. If he really died and rose again on the third day, then our faith is priceless. 
And never underestimate, if you have a, a deep and growing relationship with God through Jesus, never underestimate what God might do through your life. The opportunities will, will, will be overwhelming if you walk with Jesus daily. The same experience with the resurrection, the same experience with the scriptures. As we talked about last week, if we immerse ourselves in the scriptures, in community, God will reshape the deep structures of our thinking. In fundamental ways, we will start thinking differently. And one of the things that becomes obvious from Scripture is that you are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And and this plan that he's made, it will make sense to you. And one of the things God will do in your life if you you enter into this relationship with, with him through Jesus is that you will think about yourself differently and you will think about other people differently. You will have the compassion of God for people. And so you will want to see people thrive physically, spirit, uh, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And you have this unfathomable treasure in the gospel. And so it will be a natural thing for you want to share it with people. You've got the same foundation in the resurrection, the same experience with the scripture, and we have the same empowerment by the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, God's Spirit lives within you, and you'll start asking different questions. Again, instead of saying, what can I pull off? You'll say, what is the Spirit doing here? How might the Spirit want to use me or us in someone's life? And that's when life becomes an adventure. You're you're no longer just doing the best you can with what you got, with what makes sense to you you will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Honestly, life is too short. There's too much at stake for us to play it safe. Seek God with all your heart, soul, and mind. See what he does in you. See what he does through you. And so, God, our prayer is that you would make us people who love you with everything that they have. We pray, God, that we would have this confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus And it would be palpable. We pray, God, that as we walk with you, that our lives would be compelling and our words would flow freely. It would be very, very natural for us to to witness, bear witness to what you've done in our lives through Christ. God, we want to see people everywhere experience you. It's too small a thing that we should enjoy you and not share you with others. And so, God, accomplish this in our day, in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Father, we